0: I'm Justin Clark
1: and I'm Adam Cronin
0: and today we're talking about the future of oceans so oceans are the fundamental ecosystem for the origin of life and I figured that's probably where we should start because all life on earth began in the oceans and I just you know let's let's start there so what what do you know about the origin of life and the oceans
1: yeah so it's interesting because The oceans are sort of like this chemical mixing ground where new life comes from. And I think it is helpful when we're thinking about the future and how oceans are going to change. It's important also to start at the beginning and how did Mm -hmm. oceans first form and first bear life. Mm -hmm. And so just at a super high level, 13.8 billion years ago was the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. 4.6 billion years ago was the formation of Earth. So all this stuff is floating around it coalesces into what we now know of as earth yeah. 4.3 billion years ago the water condensed on earth in liquid form for the first time and then very shortly after 3.9 billion years ago that was the first emergence of life in the mm-hmm. ocean and it you know when a, anyone who's been in a high school biology class has probably seen the animation where it's like a little single celled Uh, you know protokaryote and then there's the multicellular eukaryote and then it turns into a little tadpole and then eventually it's an amphibian and then it (laughs) crawls out on land and then before you know it it's monkeys that become humans that build cities and so yeah so it's interesting that i mean when i was prepping for this episode i was really thinking about in the long run on geologic time scales what role is the ocean going to play with earth and no matter what happens to humankind, the ocean is going to be able to bring about new life. And that's something yeah. that no matter how bad we screw this planet up from our own perspective, there are going to be some new organisms that will come with enough time.
0: Yeah, I mean, unless we do something that permanently wrecks, you know, the, the climate to the point where there can't be any complex life that gets formed... Um, like forever. I don't know how that would even happen. I
1: don't even because- know if that's possible. I mean, they've, they've done studies where they've gone all the way to the bottom of the ocean and then they've dug miles beneath the bottom of the ocean and taken samples of what's down there. And they were expecting not to find any life because it's very hot, it's very dense and there's mm-hmm. not a lot of nutrients. But they did find organic life even that deep down there and the interesting thing is that this life was more similar to what you would find on like a forest floor than what you would find in the ocean and Scientists Mm -hmm. believe that this may actually be like the initial sapling that then turned into life as we know it today with humanity So even if we screwed up the whole ocean like miles beneath the floor of the ocean there are cells that can with enough time Mm -hmm. Evolve into the complex life that we enjoy today
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because these so down in the bottom you have these Deep-sea vents that are just spewing hot Chemicals and there's a whole bunch of weird chemical reactions going on down there that don't really occur in any other part of the ocean so there are some hypotheses that suggest like, okay, maybe, maybe it's this sort of environment, this extreme environment that allowed these early chemical reactions to create, you know, the, um, the lipids and the amino acids, and all of the things needed to create, um, RNA and DNA, you know, just started from these deep sea vents where there's these really high temperatures and chemical reactions going on all the time. Um, So it's really interesting to, you know, think of where in the ocean this could have happened and how it could have happened.
1: Yeah, and those deep sea vents are sort of baked into Earth already. We don't even need sunlight for those. So plants, even in the total darkness and where it's basically freezing cold down there, they can still get nutrients from these thermal vents. Um, So, I mean... Yeah, I mean, that just goes to show that no matter how bad we screw it up, there's always going to be a chance for redemption. Mm -hmm. But it is worth noting that the big first boom of life happened when photosynthesis did become possible. And the, the move to land was specifically a reaction to how much photosynthesizing plants were now available on land. And so these animals realized there's this new food source might as well evolve and crawl up onto land and start, I mean, obviously this was not something they consciously thought to do, but yeah, yeah, yeah. that was the result.
0: Yeah. I mean, a lot of the, the movement to land, uh, from my, from what I'm aware is with these algaes that kind of stuck on rocks, especially when the tides are going in and out. So these, these not really plants yet, like it was still kind of a sea plant, but, Um, When the tide goes out, they're still, you know, they're on land without water and they're able to survive. So
1: Hmm.
0: on the coast, you see this this life starting to emerge that can handle a drier environment outside of the oceans. And then as you as you expand, you know, several million years in the future, you have maybe some moving animals or organisms that can kind of take advantage of this now like little weird tadpoles like you were saying that can crawl up on land so it's it's really cool but the thing that sort of you know obviously we life can come back at some point the problem is will humans be around to right. see this new life you know that's that's my my dilemma obviously i want humans to be around to witness you know the the long term future of nature,
1: yeah, and I think for that, it's helpful to look at the previous extinction events because mm. those sort of give some insights into what the current extinction event and how mm. that may pan out. And for anyone who doesn't know, we are currently in the biggest mass extinction, um, you know, just by number of species and organisms at the rate at which we're making them hmm. extinct than of all of them, so more so than any of the others. Um, and the most f- famous one, obviously, is the asteroid that hit in the time of the dinosaurs. And right. the way that scientists discovered that was that they noticed that in this in this uh, strata in the geological record, that there was all of this iridium, which is a really rare material to find on Earth. Like, it's it's not something you would expect to find. And they didn't find it in any of the other layers. But it's a very common thing to be on any sort of comet or asteroid. And then they've actually discovered where the asteroid may have hit, pretty obviously. I mean, just by looking at a picture, you can see, oh yeah, something really massive hit the Earth there. And so that's how we know about the most recent extinction.
0: Mm -hmm. And so have you seen uh, One Strange Rock? Yes, I love that that
1: show. Yeah,
0: so they were talking about how this asteroid... um, hit the Yucatan Peninsula down in Central America. And at least I believe that that's referring to the the Jurassic asteroid that was part of the extinction. Um, But they were also saying how if that asteroid came one second later, it would have totally missed and just hit the ocean. And all the dinosaurs would still be alive. It just so happened that that part of the... Earth was rich in like sulfur and very flam um, and re- very flammable substances and chemicals, so it just create like set the entire atmosphere on fire, basically.
1: Right. So that was a pretty sudden extinction event
0: mm-hmm. by
1: our metrics, but the other right. four extinction events happened more gradually. It was, mm-hmm. I mean, it was very sudden from the geological record because there is a background extinction level which is very broad. It's basically one mammal goes extinct every 700 years is the current mm-hmm. back what we think of as background extinction and then that's how we say these five extinction levels occurred because it was at a much greater rate than that in the right. record but in all of the other four instances it was basically just a result of you know earth has like a thermostat getting a little bit hotter so the animals that couldn't handle that died off then it would get a little bit colder the animals that couldn't mm-hmm. handle that died off and it's sort of just going back and forth yin yanging until it gets to this optimal level for life to really flourish and it Mm -hmm. was really flourishing in the time of the dinosaurs but then the asteroid hit and then the mammals come back and it's like all right this is the time for us mammals and now fast forward to today and the background extinction level is as i said one mammal every 700 years and today guess what the extinction level is
0: I don't even know. I'm curious though.
1: In one day, 24 hour period, 150 to 200 species go extinct. I mean, this includes insect, plant, bird, and mammal. So it's, you know, it's not a direct comparison, but I mean, it is more than a thousand times what the background extinction rate is.
0: Wow. I had no idea it was that high. It's
1: insane it's it doesn't i mean the jurassic period doesn't even compare none of the other extinction events compare and it's so clear that it's a result of human activity i mean when Mm. you look at these charts i mean we'll talk about coral bleaching but just in the last two years okay it's 2019 just since 2017 two-thirds of the great barrier reef have undergone coral bleaching
0: yeah and maybe we talk about what coral bleaching is too. Cause yeah, you know, yeah. with, so, well, first I think it's, it's important to talk about biodiversity and why that's important because right, right. When, so when you have an ecosystem, it's important that you have a whole bunch of animals and organisms filling all the different niches. Mm-hmm. So you have the room for symbiosis where, um, organisms kind of pair up and they can, te- they can have this sort of teamwork, sort of how trees and fungi team up and, how you see the sharks swimming around with little fish cleaning off the parasites on their skin the same thing is true with coral so coral bleaching is essentially referring to these little algae that are living in coral reefs typically that provide the coral with i think roughly 90% of its energy right through, through photosynthesis, photosynthesis. Yeah. yeah because it can create this energy and then the bleaching takes place when they're there are environmental conditions where this uh, photosynthesis just doesn't work it's anymore. It's too so warm. It, yeah, because the, so the algae can't. Yeah, and, and through pollution and other factors too. Right.
1: Um, and a lot of people may say like, oh, well, isn't the idea of survival of the fittest still valid? Won't these organisms just evolve to meet the conditions that we now have created? But the the problem with that is that it's happening at such a fast rate that's so yeah. unnatural that mm-hmm. we're not giving these organisms time to adapt and evolve. So if we have some global warming, some climate change, mm-hmm. that's okay, they'll be able to adapt. But when it's happening at this rate where we're literally on the hockey stick curve right now, there's no mm-hmm. time for these corals or for any of these animals to recuperate and adjust.
0: Yeah, and and when when you have these corals or these algae being ejected from the coral that, you know, that's what coral bleaching is. Then the coral themselves start to die. Like you were referring to the entire Great Barrier Reef. I believe that's the biggest yeah, reef system the size in the of world. Italy. It's, it's yeah.
1: massive and, and yeah. coral, you know, coral only accounts for 1% of the surface of the ocean, but that 1% accounts for 25% of all fish and marine life. Yeah. So this think is of like, it as like a city. Like yeah. It's, it's like all of the of cities life. going ex- extinct. It's like, Oh, cities are dying off. Oh yeah. Like, you know, Singapore just died off. Tokyo just died off. Like it's a serious issue. I mean, these are the, me- the mega metropoli of the ocean mm-hmm. world.
0: Yeah. And that, I mean, that's terrifying to think about what, you know, if you just think, the thing that I think is an issue is people don't, draw they don't feel as close to the oceans Mm. as maybe they should they don't think of coral reefs as new york city they don't think of the great barrier reef as new york city or you know something out of sight out of mind yeah so they it's easy to forget about because you can be standing right above it and still not really see all of the amazing like all the wonder of a coral reef that's going on and all of the different you know transactions that are taking place between fish and organisms you know it's just
1: yeah Well, to that end, to that end, I was watching a documentary on Vice and Uh, they have these marine biology groups that go to these communities that are right by where the coral reefs are. So a lot of these are coastal uh, communities and they bring VR uh, glasses. They're mm -hmm. pretty rudimentary. It's like, you know, the kind where it's just a phone and like a cardboard. Yeah. You know, rig. And they show these kids what it's like underneath the ocean. They show them, here's what a healthy coral reef looks like, and these kids are just Mm -hmm. amazed. They're like, whoa, and they're seeing a shark and a jellyfish, and they can't believe it. And then they say, and here's what the coral reefs are becoming now with all this pollution. And they just show these dead, barren coral reefs. And then they explain to them why this is happening, what can be done about it. And they're inspiring these kids to really take ownership of the ocean and care about it, and that was something really heartening that I came across.
0: Yeah, I do enjoy, you know, or it's good to see these different movements, like um, Blue Planet, I know you watch it, and I would recommend it to all of our listeners, Blue Planet 2 is especially good, Um, and also, I think there are some aquariums that are good, some are, you know, sickening when they take, you know, orcas and these yeah. really sentient beings but when you have little tiny fish and you can just see the jellyfish roaming around and fluorescent lights and you know yeah kind they're of like the ambassadors
1: the of their species they're yeah it's really cool to see on that half of their species
0: yeah so i think sometimes um i don't think aquariums are all bad necessarily and sometimes it's good to just give kids a sense of awe of what is down there similar to this vr thing that you're talking yeah.
1: about Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, aquariums and zoos definitely play a role. I think that it becomes cruel when they start housing animals that need a bigger space than the aquarium can provide. Mm -hmm. Like I I was doing some research because I'm just really interested in sharks in general. And there have been great white sharks in aquariums, but they've never lasted more than 16 days. So basically, as soon as a shark is in a, a captive environment it starts slowly dying and some die faster than others. But part of the reason is that sharks need tremendous amount of space to travel because they cannot breathe. If they're stationary, they always have Mm -hmm. to be moving in order to breathe. Yeah. The water
0: has to pass over their gills. Yeah. And it's,
1: it's so unnatural for them to just like swim in circles around the aquarium that mm -hmm. what happens is they end up just continually ramming their nose into the glass like instinctively wanting to get out of their artificial constraints, Mm -hmm. and then they they just die. And, and, you know, there's a similar problem with orcas. Like they have that dorsal fin that gets floppy, and then Mm -hmm. they get depressed, and they die quicker than they do in the wild. So I, I think, you know, in these cases, it's not morally acceptable to have those animals. But if you're having like reef sharks and things that don't need that much space, then it's easier to create an environment that's more or less like what they're used to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there, I mean, there's so many cool little fish that you can, um, take from reefs like clownfish and, um, like angel fish, basically anything that you would think of in the, the Nemo aquarium. Like I'm sure those, those types of animals are very happy to not have, you know, apex predators constantly
1: trying them in an aquarium.
0: You know, I, I think there are some, some fish that, you know, probably have a they thrive even more in in an an aquarium environment yeah yeah
1: and i think so often people get so wrapped up around just wanting to save one species like oh save the polar bear save the panda bear like save whatever Mm. the cute cuddly animals are that we would Mm. paint in like a child's nursery room like all of those animals (laughs) yeah but there are literally millions of species that live in the coral reefs and if uh-huh. we can make some, take some actions to save the coral reefs, we can save millions of species. And there have been some interesting strategies for how to save it. One strategy has actually been artificial selection, or they call it assisted evolution, to create these super coral that are resistant to temperature fluctuations. And basically what they do is, just like how you would, artificially select for the cutest dog by just picking the cutest dog of the litter and breeding that with the other cute dog next door Uh in a similar way. You just grow coral, see which ones survive in harsher conditions and then breed those coral with others. So Mm. that is a good solution. However, the way that coral bleaching occurs is that it tends to occur in the summers because that's when it's the hottest. So it'll bleach and then it'll sort of recuperate in the winter and then it'll bleach again in the summer. And so even when with these super hardy, super coral, if we get to the runaway state of global warming, where basically the summer temperatures are like similar to what the winter temperature, or sorry, the winter temperatures are similar to what the summer temperatures are, then it'll Mm -hmm. never have that time to recoup. And Mm. that is actually projected to occur in the year 2050 if we don't make some serious improvements.
0: Oh, yeah, that's terrifying. I wonder if there are ways that we can speed up the process with CRISPR and like fast genome editing tools and maybe there's a way to create. You know, I, I'm hesitant with this kind of stuff, too. It's almost like adding an invasive species to control a system that right. we we can't cost possibly comprehend. So. Yeah. so what i what i would worry is we introduce something and it just takes over the ocean and it you know that's another thing that we do that drives mass extinction is this this single coral that kills out all the other types of coral even faster than they're already dying
1: yeah we need (laughs) to be careful
0: i mean we put it in a really harsh part of the environment really harsh part of the ocean or something that's kind of isolated so it has a, it couldn't like expand to other parts of the ocean uh, yeah very easily. I mean
1: corals seem pretty innocuous it's not like they're going out and eating other animals they're just like photosynthesized so i don't know yeah. what what the worst case scenario of super coral would be it probably wouldn't be that bad, but you know it is you do want to be careful whenever you're playing playing god um, yeah
0: I mean with grasses and stuff we there's several species of invasive grass on land you know there's weeds and stuff that just Propagate extremely easily and just kind of like kudzu is something in the south. It's a vine that'll just take over anything and grow on top of it and suffocate trees and plants and stuff. So yeah,
1: I guess the difference here is that it's either something that's alive or there's nothing and it's just dead, as opposed to like the natural species and the alien species. So yeah, yeah, it it is a tricky trade-off. I mean one one innovation that is just no one can argue that it's not good is they're actually filming google street view underneath the water to see what the coral are looking like at different time intervals because you can't improve what you can't track and now we're effectively tracking the development of coral and coral bleaching Mm -hmm. so it's it's tricky but i feel somewhat hopeful but it's not looking good i mean but one thing I will say just to just to wrap up the coral bleaching aspect is that we have done some pretty impressive things in the past with climate change. We have made great steps to close the hole in the ozone, which a lot of people thought was impossible. Mm-hmm. And that was done through international change of behavior. Mm-hmm. And we could do the same if we want to.
0: Yeah, and I think there is a sort of growing movement around caring about this kind of stuff at least that's what that's my perspective and that's yeah. that's what i i tend to see i don't i don't tend to see people that just outwardly want to destroy living things you know yeah. in, in the oceans so the the issue i think is kind of like we've talked about in previous podcasts it's setting the incentives and the the rules of the economy and like the world system to optimize for a thriving ocean ecosystem yeah. because you know in addition to coral bleaching we have stuff like overfishing
1: right and we right.
0: have um a lot of P-pollution. i think there's several yeah a lot of pollution and like i think some shark species are going extinct i forgot exactly which what uh which species it is but there's a lot of um i think two some sorts of some tuna are Kind of on the.
1: Bottom. Yeah, I mean, it's the classic case of the tragedy of the commons. And I've yeah. seen some stats. 90% of the fish that we eat today are mm. overfished. Mm. The just the stock of fish in the ocean at total is 50% of what it was in the 1970s. Wow. I mean, that is like I said, we're on the hockey stick curve right now. And the only way to solve it is by having treaties across all different countries. Because, you know, we've banned whaling in the UN and the United States and other countries have banned whaling. Yet Jap- Japan continues to kill whales because it's part of their culture and history and they make a profit. So it's really hard to get other countries on board. But especially when it comes to overfishing and pollution, we have mm-hmm. to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, pollution is particularly scary because it's not like we're just throwing stuff in the ocean. And that's I mean, some people are obviously, but there's also the case of just our land being polluted and then it rains and then the runoff all goes into the ocean.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, people make a big deal about the oil spills because it's such an obvious example. Uh-huh. But the reality is the background rate of pollution is ungodly. There's 500 million gallons of toxic waste being dumped into the ocean by corporations every year. 500 million gallons. That's insane. And And they're they're expected to be more plastic than fish by the year 2050 in the ocean.
0: That's gross. (laughs) So, I mean. Let's
1: talk about the plastic issue because that's huge.
0: So plastics, well, first, I mean, the, the one that's been talked about a lot recently are microplastics because those are little, um, it's little particles and, um, stuff that's in basically everything we own. So I think it was, I think it was probably a year ago when there was the huge ban of shampoos and soaps that had these little, um, plastic balls in them that, um, that I guess helped. I don't know if it was an aesthetic thing or helped with something. Yeah, scent well, a lot something. of skincare
1: products will have that as like an exfoliant.
0: Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So, but all of these little things were going straight into the water supply, and it's really hard to filter this kind of stuff out. So they're just ending up in the oceans. Yeah. And the problem is the little organisms in the ocean, like little baby fish, eat basically anything that is small enough for them. And there's, I mean, there's in the ocean, you have little fish of all sizes. So you can have little tiny fish eating a bunch of plastic as their food source. And then you also have fish eating those fish that are eating plastic. Right. And eventually it just leads to entire species or entire organisms that are just, you know, eating a huge chunk of plastic because of all the subsequent or all, everything that's lower in the food chain is eating Something you know that ate plastic.
1: Yeah, and then we eat the fish, or we yeah. eat the crab, or the lobster, or whatever.
0: Yeah. Or and the ocean eats it. Or sorry, the the whales eat it, which right. we've seen a lot recently. Well, they just
1: saw a beached. I just read about a beached whale that had yeah. like like I don't know how many how many pounds of plastic in its stomach, but it also had an entire drum <laughs> intact. Wow. And yeah, I mean these fish are down, are washing up everywhere. They did a recent study on seabirds, and they found that 90% of seabirds are contaminated by having consumed plastics and microplastics. So that means if you eat that bird, you're going to have plastics in your gut. And they've done studies on humans, like human stool and Mm -hmm. human gut samples. And they found that the vast majority of humans also now have microplastics. And we have really no idea what the long-term consequences are. So far, it seems like There's no real drastic effects of it, but the rate of microplastics in each person's belly is going up exponentially. And when it reaches a certain level, who knows, like all of humanity could become infertile. Like there's a lot of bad things. You know, people could start getting cancer at much higher rates. Um, It could be really bad.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, there are, yes, obviously that's, that's a bad thing and we should, do everything we can to make it stop but there are some things that are some steps that are being taken to mitigate this problem so one of those steps is um, developing bacteria that can actually digest plastic yeah Um, so right now we have bacteria that can pretty much digest everything except for you know it has trouble with oil it has trouble with plastics for the most part. Um, but if we can, I, I imagine that those types of bacteria are just going to start proliferating. And the nice thing about, um, bacteria is their evolution cycles are much shorter than organisms that live a lot longer because they go through generations extremely quickly mm-hmm. so that they can go through the whole survival of the fittest process. Um,
1: yeah. way more- I think that's a really smart solution for taking care of the current plastic crisis and especially microplastics because you can't like gather that up. It'll just, yeah. it's so small. But mm. I kind of feel like it's also a, you know, swallowing a spider to catch the fly situation <laughs> because we create plastic because it's super durable and it's something that is sanitary and it's mm. something that lasts for a long time. But we don't need these things to last for a long time. It's like, I'm drinking this tea. It's plastic. I probably shouldn't be showing this, but <laughs> like I'm just going to throw it out as soon as I'm done with it. Or like a uh-huh. plastic straw, maybe you use it for five minutes and then you never use it again. Or like any sort of packaging, like an apple in a wrapper or like just mm-hmm. whatever it is. This does not need to be something that's durable. And it, the plastic is estimated to take between 500 and 1,000 years before it breaks down and can actually be recycled into the environment. There's no reason wow. why we need something that long lasting for most of the uses of what plastic actually is. Like we'd be way better off. I mean, in, in California, you cannot buy a plastic straw. You can only buy a paper straw. And some people complain, they're like, oh, but it, you know, it gets a little soggy by the end of my you know, iced frappe, <laughs> <laughs> but dude, like, come on, it's going to last for a thousand years just so you can have a little bit less soggy of a straw. Like it's yeah, I mean, totally you don't even idiotic. Need a straw no, you don't even need a straw. What do you need a straw for? And it gives so you the... wrinkles. It gives you the same wrinkles as like a long-term smoker would get. So everyone in LA take note of that. <laughs> oh my gosh.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. It's, obviously the bacteria solution isn't, isn't ideal, but I mean, there's obviously some good that comes from plastics. Like a lot of medical advancements come from being able to make these really intricate devices yeah. with plastic. So, cause plastic is a lot easier to manufacture than some like glass. Right. Or
1: I mean, there are applications, but it shouldn't be just every bag that grocery store every like water Uh, bottle, like, why do we even have (laughs) water bottles? I mean, it's, it's really idiotic. But there was I did come across one story that gives me a lot of hope. And Mm -hmm. this was this young entrepreneur, I think he was a teenager when he first came up with this. But he came up with a way to get rid of at least 60% of the Pacific garbage patch in yeah. just two years. You probably read about this kid also.
0: Yeah, he was on Joe Rogan's podcast actually.
1: Oh, I didn't, I didn't hear that one. But anyways, his invention is basically this super long rubber pipe that floats in the ocean. And it has this skirt that is the deepest in the middle of the pipe. And then it gets a little bit shallower as it goes towards the ends. And mm-hmm. that design allows it to move exactly in line with the movements of the ocean. So that it will naturally go to wherever the plastic tends to aggregate anyways. And it just collects an enormous amount of trash. And then every once in a while, a boat will come by like a dumpster truck, collect it and take it away to be recycled to create new things. Now, this doesn't solve the microplastic problem because microplastics are too small. They'll just slip through. But it's a big step in the right direction for the bigger plastics that we can see with the human eye. Mm
0: -hmm yeah and I really do think that there are going to be so if especially marine life had a little bit longer to evolve, it would evolve some way to adapt to this. so if humans were to disappear now, mm-hmm. you know that would that would be obviously a good thing for the environment but um, what it would do for the oceans is it would you know give them some time to adapt to the these high microplastic environments and eventually something would take place where you know these these little bacteria or little fish that could digest the plastics were you know the top of the food chain
1: yeah because
0: they could they could eat these things so the problem is coming up with you know do do we want to play god and try to create organisms that can digest plastic or you know what I don't really know what the solution would be Yeah I mean we I, should I'm take a hesitant.
1: we should take a multi-pronged approach. We should Definitely, basically yeah. ban plastic bags, ban plastic straws, ban plastic water bottles. There's just no reason to have them. And we should also try to get rid of the plastic that has already accumulated and we mm-hmm. should look into the health implications of consuming microplastics and how those might be mitigated.
0: Yeah, and one thing too, just kind of a side note. It it goes a little bit away from oceans, but there's a whole bunch of micro microplastics in our clothing and just all the fabrics around us. So if you're, you know, wearing anything that's not cotton or wool or some purely natural thing, it's probably filled with microplastics and leeches microplastics every time you wash it. So you know that's just something to keep in mind for listeners. Yeah. It's it's not just what we eat. Or drink, it's also the type of environment that we're living in.
1: Yeah. I think a good topic to discuss next would be how much of the ocean has been explored, or I should say, how little of the ocean has been explored. So 95% of the ocean is unexplored, and 99% of the ocean floor is unexplored. So we literally know more about the surface of Mars than we do about the floor of our own ocean. And I find That's this amazing. incredible. And they are doing they are making taking some steps now to figure out what's down there like they have this new system where they have sensors kind of like Google, you know, map sensors mm. that basically shoot down and then when they find a different density of mass then they that allows them to map out the topography of the ocean floor. Yep. But the interesting thing is that a lot of the times what they think is the floor is not actually the floor.
0: Yeah. Because like, there's like this little film, right, that's just kind of sitting and it looks yeah. like it looks like there's almost a lake. Yeah, it's like in SpongeBob
1: when like they have a lake down there. Like that actually exists. They're like super salty yeah. waters or more dense. It's like, you know, when you're have like oil and water and they kind of or like Uh, balsamic vinegar and olive oil and they kind of separate out that happens with certain substances in the ocean and there may actually be more organisms living below that which is fascinating and just for anyone who's into more of the sci-fi like spooky aspect there is marine gigantism which is the phenomenon of having enormous animals when you go super deep into the sea like, you know, something that's essentially an insect, like an anthropod that is basically Uh the same thing as like lice or like a tick. And Uh yet it's the size of a polar bear, (laughs) like a woolly (laughs) mammoth.
0: That's terrifying.
1: And they, they think that the reason that there's, I mean, they don't really know why animals tend to get really big when you go that deep into the ocean. But some hypotheses are that, when it's that dense down there, like that much water pressure, having a bigger body actually gives you a little more protection. And other others have said that a lot of the nutrients that these animals consume when they're way down deep are really not good nutrients, like microplastics. And it's like just, it's like the dregs of the dregs. And so they're by having a bigger body, they're like more able to process a lot of like wasteful nutrients to get the good stuff than if they just had like a smaller digestive system, but it still is a mystery, but it's, it's damn interesting. I mean, it's kind of like the Meg, that movie that came out and
0: (laughs) (laughs) I never saw it, but
1: (laughs) oh, it's good. I mean, it's bad, but it's good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I got it. (laughs) No, that's, that's actually really cool. I, I really like that. Um, people like James Cameron are, making this sort of a movement like let's yeah. let's actually take the time to explore our own earth before exploring other planets and other solar systems you know yeah. I, I'm sort of conflicted I think we should do both you know equally but I think uh, the ocean has been a little neglected in terms yeah, of exploration
1: it's not as sexy as space so it gets neglected. yeah well at least
0: we think so I mean I think just the public I think perception of I mean. yeah I think just the way it's framed. Um, it's right here, you know, we can just go in our backyard, essentially, and go explore something that no one has ever seen before. You know, yeah. I I'm, I don't even know what the number of shipwrecks are that haven't ever been uh, discovered. Like, we know sort of where they went down, but no one's ever been able to find these shipwrecks. Um, yeah,
1: and, and there are some fascinating creatures down there. I mean, things mm. that are... Like aliens do exist and they live in the ocean. Oh, and, I yeah. Mean, these are just so different from what we think of as a typical creature or a typical mind. Like even uh. taking the octopus as an example, something we're fairly yep. familiar with. This is a very complex conscious creature that is so different from our own <clears> sense <throat> of being a conscious creature. I mean, octopi have the ability to camouflage themselves in any environment to where any human diver would have no idea that they're next to an octopus. They would think it's just a rock. And yet, octopi cannot see colors. They're totally colorblind. So it's like their skin is acting separately from the rest of them, and then each of their arms is acting somewhat separately than the rest of them. It's like they're a decentralized conscious being
0: yeah
1: and when i was thinking about this i was thinking like well we humans also are a decentralized conscious being like any if anyone who's super into meditation like you've heard the buddhist doctrine of there is no self the self is an illusion and that is true there's many selves within each person that are sort of vying for dominance in the moment and whichever one is most relevant given the context of the situation will come to the forefront but with octopi it's even more obvious that that's the case because they're so decentralized that they don't even have a, they're not even fooled into thinking that they're all one being. It's like they really are like a bunch of different beings within one, all acting in accordance.
0: Yeah. I mean, so with humans, we have really a huge bundle of nerves called the brain. But those nerves kind of extend throughout the body. It's just less concentrated bundles of nerves. so there's you know, if you think of consciousness as a continuous process of you know information processing. so if there's more neurons, there's more information being processed. And with us, we just that happens to be going on mostly in the head. But yeah. with octopi, my understanding is that it's like you're saying, it is more decentralized. like they they do have what we would think of as a head but that's not necessarily where the majority of the neurons are like the neurons are spread throughout the body
1: yeah Um, like when an octopus is meditating it doesn't (laughs) think of its inner self as being in its head it thinks of its inner self as being like all around its little suction suction cups (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah yeah yeah, they're they're so fascinating because I mean you have chameleons on land, but they they can't blend to any background, and it's also not an extremely fast switch. With octopi and I think um, the f- pretty related cuttlefish, like they can basically change instantaneously. Yeah, and they also it's not even just for camouflage, like the cuttlefish. Will start making these weird psychedelic patterns to confuse the fish that they're about yeah, to eat. Yeah,
1: the bioluminescence.
0: Just, yeah, like they'll they'll have these striped patterns just moving all along their body, and then the fish just kind of freeze because they have no idea what's happening in front of them. Um, so I'm gonna, you know, recommend one of the episodes of Blue Planet because it show it kind of highlights the cuttlefish a lot. Oh, the okay. coral. Yeah, the the coral reef episode. And green, I think green planet or green waters or something like that, yeah, um, something green, um, both of those talk about cuttlefish, and they're so smart too, right, because like the way uh cuttlefish work is you know if they have a giant male cuttlefish, and then uh, of you know, a smaller female cuttlefish, the male will fight off any of the small males. Hmm. But since they can change color, one of the episodes in uh, Blue Planet, it shows how this cuttlefish pretends to be a girl because it can change the colors and sort of change its shape a little bit to uh, mimic what a female is and then just slides in right below the male because he's protecting his other female (laughs) and then mates with the female right under the big male and then just swims off.
1: The old switcheroo. Uh, Yeah.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's just crazy um how they can do this and yeah there's so mimicry. much to
1: there's so much to learn from the ocean and mm. that's one that's another thing is that even if you're one of these like cold corporate guys who just only cares about the economy and you know how things are going to impact the stock market and whatever there's an estimated 174 billion dollars worth of value every year Generated by the oceans, and that's mm. accounted for by just fishing the fishing industry by mm. the coral reefs. Prevent, oh, sorry, that's not for all of the sea, that's just for the coral reefs. That estimate,
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, wow.
1: And th- it also prevents a lot of like if there's a hurricane, it'll lessen the damage of that hurricane because it's sort of like a buffer zone,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and then also for tourism, I mean, a big reason why people will travel to you know, um, the Bahamas or wherever is so they can swim with the fish. And if there's no fish there, people aren't going to come. So there are real economic reasons and there are potentially incredible medical discoveries just waiting to be made in the ocean. So any way you look at it, we need to preserve the ocean.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just with... Uh, that kind of goes back to the whole biodiversity thing. If you have... A lot of different organisms filling all the different niches especially what you were saying with the medical um, advancements if you have a whole bunch of uh, organisms that are filling the niches then there's going to be something that creates some sort of chemical process or chemical reaction that could be useful to um, medicine
1: yeah and yeah
0: and that Um, You know, it's just really important to preserve not only the overall number of animals in the ocean, but the biodiversity of the animals in the ocean.
1: Yeah. Now, do you want to talk about some of the geopolitics of the ocean and then we can get into the future scenarios?
0: Yeah, sure. Let's do it. What are you you thinking?
1: Yeah, so... As far as the human realm of what we think is important and what we do on the surface of the ocean, there are some interesting things happening. So the most interesting thing from my perspective is what's going on with the North pole and the Arctic ocean. And so just a little background, people have been trying to find a passageway across the Arctic ocean for centuries. I watched this show on AMC, which I highly recommend. It's called the terror and it's based on a true story of these British ice breaking ships that had the mission of trying to find a better, shorter passage route through the Arctic ocean and they were Mm. never seen from again. So this is something that no one has been able to successfully do, but with global warming, it is predicted that there will be viable paths through the Arctic Ocean very soon. Not only that, but there's estimated to be an incredible amount of oil and natural gas there. It's also just you know, un- uncharted territory that countries can claim. And Russia is being the most aggressive about claiming the North Pole and the Arctic Ocean. They have about 30 icebreaker ships Right now, forging their path in the Arctic Ocean, the United States only has three icebreaking ships, and wow. other countries like Norway and you know some Maybe other Nor- Canada. Yeah, in Canada, like there are some other countries that have claims, but they tend to be really friendly, non <laughs> like non aggressive <laughs> countries. So, how the Not North right. Pole gets sliced up is going to be one of the biggest changes to the future of geopolitics as it relates to the ocean that we have seen in our lifetimes.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you think about all of the land that can potentially be lost on the coasts by the melting ice, that land is now potentially going to be productive in the poles.
1: Yeah. Um, The funny thing is that the only reason the U.S. has a claim at all is because of quote-unquote Seward's folly this guy, Seward, who purchased Alaska from Russia way back when. And everyone was like, oh, this guy's an idiot. He just purchased this frozen tundra for like all this money. So they called it Seward's Folly. And now it's like <laughs> one of the best deals ever made in history. Wow. So that's the only reason the United States has any claim to the North Pole. So that's, that's one big theater of geopolitics. Another theater that I think is really interesting is the Indian Ocean. So what's going on there is that there's the big conflict between India and Pakistan that is ever going. and even with and that's, you know, a lot of Hindu versus Muslim. And then even within the Muslim community, there's the Shiites versus the Sunnis. So there's all of this conflict going on in the Indian Ocean, and the Indian Ocean is the most important single sea. For sea trade, so fifty percent of all commerce in the ocean goes through the Indian Ocean. Wow. Okay. And so, what happens there? Like, if there were a nuclear battle between Palestine and and uh, or, or uh, Pakistan and India, mm-hmm. that would be terrible for commerce and terrible right. for a lot of reasons. Um, and then, just the the only other thing I'll mention is that the Black Sea is the other really interesting theater of the ocean where it's been described as like a wild west where there still are tons of pirates and that's also where Russia's being super aggressive. They're trying to like stake their claim and and there's also the South China Sea where China's basically building fake islands so that they can have more direct control over that part of the ocean and where like we've always got our like submarines like right up there and it's kinda like uh-huh. this like Mexican standoff that so far hasn't <laughs> resulted in any combat but you know, it's, these are all potential ticking time bombs.
0: Yeah. I mean that, I wasn't aware of the, the black sea thing. That's, that's interesting. Um, yeah. And like, yeah. I mean, Russia, Russia seems to be making moves in all fronts. It makes me, you know, I don't want to make this, you know, I don't want to claim to know that much. We should, about I really politics.
1: wanted to bring one of our Russian friends on, <laughs> Justin and I know some people in Russia, but I wonder if they would even be willing because,
0: I yeah I, you know, I think it, we speaking a against the mother
1: state probably. is probably not something that's looked <laughs> looked kindly upon.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe we shouldn't do that. <laughs> but but it's it's really interesting to see how Russia is doing this on seemingly all fronts. Yeah, and it, they're a relatively small country but they can, yeah. you know, they're but California
1: they're making all these has things. a way bigger GDP than the country of Russia.
0: Yeah, I so think. so if they can somehow do all of this through strategy and intellect alone, you know, without having the economy, that's maybe what they're thinking can propel them to, you know, the next world superpower. Yeah,
1: they're scrappy.
0: <laughs> yeah, dude. That I mean, that's a that's a interesting point. I'm I'm not really sure You know what what to expect from them just because i'm so uninformed in the world of geopolitics but well
1: they may end up getting all the oil and natural gas and by that point we may have already switched to renewable energy and nuclear energy so it may not be as valuable as they think to get the natural resources but to have dominance over the trade routes up there is a real advantage and you can almost like surround the US or like surround other places if you have a front on the North Pole. So yeah. it is strategic militarily.
0: Mm-hmm. And economically, I mean just yeah, the country as a whole.
1: Well anyways, I think we've covered all the broad trends. Maybe we should get into the future scenarios now.
0: Yeah, let's do it. All right, so Matamor, what is your worst case scenario? Worst
1: case scenario. So my worst case scenario is pretty rotten for humans. Obviously, it doesn't matter for life as a whole, as we talked about in the beginning of the episode. But my worst case scenario is basically sleepwalking along the path that we've already begun. And that will lead to an irrecoverable level of coral bleaching by 2050 so when we get to the point where the coral cannot recuperate in the winter because it's gotten so hot that it just doesn't have the ability it's it's basically never in conditions that it's able to survive once that happens 25 percent of all marine life that we depend on will go away and when you combine the loss of, of that as a food source with how climate change is going to impact the ability to produce food on land when also combined with droughts in some regions, when also combined with rising sea levels that lead to climate refugees, when also combined with nationalism that makes people not want to take in the refugees, all of these things could create a domino effect That just leads to a really rotten world where, you know, just like with the refugee crisis where we saw people in, like, inflatable, like, (laughs) boats that you would see in, like, Uh. your friend's swimming pool, and they're using these things to get across the Black Sea or the Mediterranean Sea, and they're dying by the thousands, and even when they get there, they're they're across to, to Europe or wherever, they're treated horribly, and yeah. it just becomes like a terrible situation. And it's the tragedy of the commons that never, like, we never get our act together and decide to do something about it on a global scale because everyone goes off into their own corner. Yeah. That's, that's my worst case scenario. But, I, I, and one thing I'll add is if this was also combined with some of the geopolitical stuff, like if there were a nuclear battle between Pakistan and India and that disrupted all of the trade. In the Indian Ocean, which is fifty percent of all sea commerce, then that could be yet another angle that would just lead to a terrible, terrible circumstances for, you know, that pretty much everyone on planet Earth, every human at least.
0: Yeah, I mean that that's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, so mine is actually uh, fairly similar. Um, so I'll add a couple of points that um, that I thought of too is. Uh, one of the other problems with a warming ocean is the pretty much the very bottom of the food chain of phytoplankton, which are eaten by almost everything or at least to some extent you know because they are at the bottom yeah. of the food chain. Phytoplankton survive and thrive in the cooler waters, and if there's nowhere for them to migrate to and or uh, temperatures. Very wildly, and there's not really a home for them, or there's only a few pockets of good phytoplankton sources in the ocean, that's going to be an even bigger driver of life loss and biodiversity loss because it's affecting the very bottom of the food chain. Um, And then the other thing, too, that we didn't talk about earlier is you know, a lot of life in the ocean is right around the coasts of everywhere in the world um the deep blue ocean you know there probably are a lot of uh, there's a lot of species there but one of the problems with the warming climate on land is we're not going to have as much productive land for farming which means what we're probably going to resort to is adding a bunch of fertilizers to the mm. ground and making sure that everything you know trying to make these this soil fertile when it's really not so we're like over fertilizing the ground and what will happen then is when it rains this fertilizer goes into the water which creates these huge algae booms yeah and and when these when these algae overproduce they use a ton of oxygen and they basically suck out all the oxygen of the water so all of the life around the coasts Die because of yeah. the lack of oxygen,
1: and the the pH level of the oceans has already increased by thirty percent. So the or acidity the, the acidity level.
0: So the pH decrease, but yeah,
1: yeah. Or yeah, yeah. Sorry, but <laughs> but since the time that the industrial revolution began, so that's mm-hmm. a thirty percent. That's a massive increase, and now we're hitting that hockey stick where it's really accelerating. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean that's. That would be yeah, a terrible scenario.
0: Thing. And I mean, the CO two the ocean absorbs a ton of CO two. It's been one of the ocean is a huge stabilizer of the world's climate. And when it's absorbing all of this CO2, it's acidifying. It it lowers the pH and makes it and that's another cause for coral bleaching, another cause for warming, and another cause for, you know, a whole bunch of um fundamental food chain Sources being taken out of the food chain. Yeah Um, So I mean again, you know, this is me saying all the terrible things that are gonna happen and um, Likely will happen, but I think you also laid out how this affects Life on land and it affects us. Yeah Um, Because think of think of countries that eat predominantly fish now imagine that there are no fish in the human diet there's nothing Related, nothing out of water that we can eat. That's obviously an issue. So,
1: yeah.
0: like, what what do we replace with that? Fish are an extremely healthy source of nutrients for us, and if you take that away, then that, we'll have to, you know, we'll have I, to find a even, way
1: to start eating plastic. <laughs> I
0: guess, <laughs> or or we'll have a whole bunch of like farmed food, farmed, farmed fish, or something. I know there are like farmed trout. you know, but again, that's like having factory farmed meat. It's not the great, it's probably not the greatest. Right.
1: And and it's not like, it's not like food is going to become so scarce that everyone's going to starve, but it can become so scarce that it's too expensive for a lot of people to afford. Mm -hmm. And with any of these crises, climate change, the ocean, geopolitical battles, it's always the lowest rung of society that gets hit the hardest. And a lot of these you know, rural struggling areas r- directly depend on what they get out of the ocean. Yeah. And those are people, those communities are going to be disrupted first. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just really sad to see a lot of the, the stuff that's going on, but you know, we can, well, maybe we get into the best case to lighten up the mood a little bit. <laughs> yeah. What, what do you think? Best case scenario.
1: So my best case scenario, it really hinges on cooperation across countries, particularly if the U.S. and China and India can sort of lead the charge. I think then we have some real hope. And I think this will stem from a mindset of just trying to learn from the ocean Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and especially with some of the ambitious plans that we have for extending longevity, curing cancer. If we really view the ocean as this valuable repository of genetic biodiversity that we can hard that we can harvest to create a better world for ourselves, for our kids, for other species that we care about, mm-hmm. then I think that could lead to a situation where, you know, like I said, we have closed the ozone hole not completely but we've made great progress there we can take on some of these major challenges if we work across national divisions Mm. and if we use renewables if we grow meat in a lab feed cows seaweed have more regulations uh, to prevent overfishing and pollution if we put these regulations in place and we stick to them and maybe we have a governing body that can really track who's Mm -hmm. complying and who's not. And that's something that I think actually is possible now that wasn't possible previously because our ability to like basically have a bird's eye view of what everyone is doing at all times is not something Mm -hmm. we had before. Like we can, we can tell if North Korea is building nukes or not. We can just basically look at them through Google earth or whatever our version is that the NSA has access to Mm -hmm. or the FBI or whatever. Um, And, uh, yeah, so I think that there is the possibility for accountability if we all band together and decide it's something that we as a global world care about.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's very similar to mine. It's, I think the best case is if we can all work together to save or just let, you know, leave it alone, leave the ocean be in, it can fix itself, you know, yeah, the, just it's slow a, it's a the fairly, advantage. Yeah, it's it's a really uh, resilient ecosystem. Um, the the thing that I would like to see is uh, when we have some sort of global structure that we can harvest fish sustainably. And maybe maybe there that needs to be researched more. Like, what is the most sustainable way that we can harvest fish, and how can we how can we you know make the ocean more abundant. How You know, how can we make all of these changes ourselves and fix all of the previous mistakes? I'm sure that science and scientists and, you know, businesses can come up with a solution to this, but the incentives need to be in place for us to actually get to this point. Um, but I think, you know, best case scenario, we do, you know, we do have these incentives aligned. And the ocean thrives, and we can also explore it and figure out all of these mysteries that we've never, um, we've never been able to tackle. Because one, we don't have the devices and the submarines that can go down. But now with all the robots and stuff, we can kind of explore and see the wonders of these these underground, you know, lakes like we were talking about, and maybe find some crazy, um, crazy big creatures and you know everything else i just i hope that we can get to that point um i hope i think it would be better if we can focus on earth probably before focusing on mars um yeah
1: well i just thought of an interesting anecdote from uh, that which is that when the white man first came to north america the native americans thought that the white man had a disease because they they're like (laughs) Why these people are crazy. Why do they want to take more than they need? Like they only need so much food. Why do they need to constantly be conquering more and more land? And why do they feel the need to subjugate others and only succeed by putting down others? And why do they have this zero sum mentality and just all consuming mm-hmm. nature? Why can't they just live off the land and, and live in in concert with the land and, mm-hmm. That's something that has really gotten us to where we are now. And if we don't take some lessons from our Native American ancestors, mm-hmm. then we're going to consume everything, including ourselves and in our, in
0: our society. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. What do you think for the likely scenario then? Most likely scenario.
1: Yeah, so the I have seen some really good progress in just the movement of environmentalism in general. So I'm very hopeful for the United States. I am, and and Europe. I'm a little concerned about like the rest of the world, especially develop, more developing nations like India and Brazil and you know Southeast mm. Asia. And it's a, it's a lot more difficult for them to have the same sort of regulations that we do because they've they're struggling to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. Um, so my most likely scenario is environmentalism continues to make progress in the West and it's going to get to a, some big event that's going to bring the whole international community together. And at that point we will have a global path towards saving Mm -hmm. our oceans. Like the event could be, maybe there's like some big conflict between Pakistan and India and then the whole world sort of gets together, maybe it's like some conflict in the South China Sea where then we decide like, hey, let's just, you know, we're in this together. I don't know what the big conflict is going to be, but it seems Mm. like we're going to sleepwalk along the path that we're going to until something like really wakes us up and we're like, oh shit, like this could get really bad if we don't do something. And whether or not that will be early enough for us to, save most of the damage i don't know but that's what i think is most likely to occur
0: yeah i mean this this is the quintessential example of it's going to get worse before it gets better i think right um right now what i see as a likely um terrible scenario that you know that's going to catalyze some real positive movement is the loss of a lot of the, um, the edible fish like tuna, like sardines, you know, tilapia, all of these things that get eaten on a daily basis by a huge percentage of the world's population. If that just ceases to exist because such a huge life is lost, or so much life is lost in the oceans that it's just not available. That's going to be I think that's going to be a wake up call to people because everybody, even in, you know, rural America, people still like to eat fish. Like it's not it's not a totally um, removed thing. And that's something that will impact a huge percentage of the world's population.
1: Yeah. and, And with with climate change, it's like, yeah, not all species of fish are going to go extinct and not all species of plants are going to go extinct. But the mm-hmm. ones that we care about are the first ones to go down. Like, yeah. the weeds are going to be fine. They, they thrive in a carbon-rich <laughs> environment. The strawberries yeah. and blueberries and baby kale and that stuff, that needs a lot of environment or a lot of oxygen, a lot of TLC. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with fish. Like, our, you know, the nice swordfish and tuna, like, those will be gone. Yeah, maybe we can still eat the bottom feeders, but those are going to be like half filled with plastic and yeah so it's yeah it's pretty dire but I also have hope
0: yeah I think I think we probably won't you know while humans are alive I would venture to guess that we'll never get to the peak of ocean life ever again like I think while well
1: while humans are here but
0: while humans are here that's what I mean so with if humans remain alive. I don't think we'll ever get to the pinnacle of, you know, right before the dinosaurs went extinct or, you know, whatever the pinnacle of the ocean looked like. I don't think we'll ever get back to that point while we're here, but we can still try to approximate the amount of life and the amount of biodiversity that was in the oceans at these, the peak of, you know, natural life.
1: Right. And even if we do nuke ourselves into oblivion there, are yeah. you know a couple million years go by and then there will be amphibians walking around or driving their cars and it'll be this yeah. like different world or there'll be like intelligent bird species that like lord over all the others from their high castles or you <laughs> well, know who birds knows? are
0: basically dinosaurs so birds were yeah, birds were the dinosaurs that lived through that that asteroid impact right. so or it'll be I, like I think cockroach can... world. <laughs> Bird and cockroaches. There we go. Yeah, and ants probably ants are fascinating.
1: Yeah, um, well, life will anyways. be fine. It's all about saving ourselves.
0: Yep. Yeah. yeah, let's make this a selfish thing. I think if if people can be more selfish and realize that saving the environment is saving themselves, then that's you know, oh, that's yeah, <laughs> potentially one way to catalyze this movement also.
1: Yeah, but like for instance, Alan Watts once was invited to the Department of Defense as part Mm -hmm. of like an ethics committee and they were trying to decide like what stance they should take in the world. And Alan Watts was like, be selfish. What do you want out of this? Oh, you want to take over these countries? Do you really want to rule them afterwards? That's gonna be messy. Like what's your real (laughs) end goal? What do you, what's, what does your ideal world look like? And then the the national security people are like, oh shit, we never thought about that. Like, like, we're just trying to like fuck shit up, you know? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's true. It's like, even if you take the selfish approach, if you're have an expanded perspective where you're selfish, but you realize that everything is interconnected, different species, different people, different nations, then you'll do the right thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, being selfish is probably a fine strategy. If you're a rational person and you use and you have all of the information at your disposal and don't right. kid yourself so if you're if you're actually smart about stuff and you really care about the long-term future of yourself and your maybe your kin you know that's that's enough to help you make the right choices i would you know
1: yeah that's why education is so key. we are all gathered here today to talk about Every all right well i think thing. that's good to end it thank you everyone for We're listening talk about this has been what has the future happened of oceans. what is currently
0: happening and time. what will inevitably happen the best the present is the future our computer